Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Joy and today we're learning from Brendan Condon, a serial eco-entrepreneur. Brendan subscribes to Gandhian principles of social change and used this framework to move from environmental activism in his youth to building an ecosystem of sustainability-focused businesses that are working together to create the building blocks of the sustainable city of the future. We talk about his journey, four of his impressive businesses, including a sustainable coffee company and his sustainable living property development, all of which we found incredibly compelling and inherently positive. We decided to record this episode outside in Brendan's very own pop-up urban garden in the car park of his inner city offices. And this made for a lovely discussion at the time with a soothing backdrop of plants and urban biodiversity. But as the audio demonstrates, we were still in inner city Melbourne and shared the tranquility with planes, cars, helicopters and inner city cheeky birds who thought they'd contribute to the conversation rather loudly. So for those listeners out there who haven't had the exposure to your typical inner city Australian bird life, apologies in advance, they do settle down after a while and this conversation is well worth persevering for. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Now I give you Brendan Condon. Brendan, it is wonderful to be here at the Cirrus Fine Coffee Roastery in Port Melbourne, Australia, for the international listeners. Let's start with you. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? So I was born up in the high country here in Victoria, near Mount Kosciuszko. Grew up there till I was around seven years old. Then we came down towards the coast, down towards Gippsland. And uh, then I came into Melbourne when I was around 17, 18 years old, and I've been here ever, ever since. So I grew up in the country, but have been enjoying the city, great city of Melbourne uh, for the best part of my life. So you must feel right at home with these uh, birds. Yeah, so we have crows and wattle birds and seagulls. Uh, we're right in the heart of Melbourne um, and only you know, a couple of kilometres from the city here. But we have biodiversity all around us yeah. if you look and listen. Yeah, absolutely. So um, please, listeners, feel like you're part of this urban ecosystem as you listen to this episode. So, Brendan, now you, I understand that you were always fascinated by nature as a kid, and that has obviously influenced you as you've gone through your career. Um, maybe you can share some of your earliest memories of nature and how that's, and how that's influenced you. Yeah, so I've always had a, a deep fascination with the natural world. So my parents told me when they took me away as a child, I'd spend all day out in little wetlands nearby, um, engaging with nature and fascinated with the creatures. And when I was eight years old, my uh, friends gave me a book on conservation. So I was already articulating at a very young age that I wanted to work on uh, trying to you know, uh, preserve and work with, with the natural world. And, and then it grew on from there. When I was 13, I, I got involved in national campaigns to try and save big wilderness areas in Australia. And it was just a natural progression. And I've always found that nature's a place where you get uh, peace and a sense of calm. So I've sought out the big wilderness areas on this planet and gone for great big walks and, and, and odysseys. But also in my weekly life, I, I, I like spending uh, time in urban biodiversity. So I go for a walk in the Royal Botanical Gardens through the rainforest section here in Melbourne and I do that bit of forest bathing and just find that bit of peace in, a, in this overstimulated world. So yeah, nature's very important. Yeah, it does have that sort of meditative effect. I think it's a growing body of sort of psychological knowledge now how important uh, green spaces are for for human uh, emotional health and, and, and mental health. Absolutely. And I even see it with this little pop-up farm that we've built here. 
uh, you know, we're, we're running a really super busy hub upstairs, running a number of companies and um, big projects all around the, the state in Australia. And I often find I'm just coming out here quite a bit just to, um, you know, uh, look at the, the, the plants as they grow and doing a bit of watering and, and looking at the, the biodiversity that's dropping in and enjoying this little green space here. So I'm one of the biggest beneficiaries of, of building this thing and turning a car space into this little thriving hub behind it. So it's, it's a real thing. So Brendan, from those early days, your pathway has taken you through environmental activism and then onto business. Um, perhaps you can share how all of that unfolded and how you came to to be using business as a mechanism for change. From a really young age, I saw that we we need to really make some big changes uh, to try and preserve biodiversity and you know, sort of watching the you know the disappearance of the Amazonian rainforest and the big ecosystems starting to get the wobbles around the planet. So in my late teens and early twenties, I, I did a lot of activist work where I was protecting old growth forests and Southeast Asia's rainforests and doing disciplined non-violent actions where we were going out there and actually trying to stop um, really destructive processes. Like bulldozers and things? Yeah, so you know, protecting cool. <laughs> areas of old growth forests right around Victoria, uh, Southeast Asia's rainforests. We did a lot of human rights work. Chaining uh, yourself to trees, right? Well, yeah, we did. We did uh, swim out in front of nuclear warships and. Uh, what? And, Amazing. Um, yeah, it, you it, swam out in front of nuclear warships. <laughs> we, did, we did those sort of things to, to um, you know, with that real passion of youth to put our bodies on the line to try and stop, stop, uh, you know, damaging processes, and we did it really well. It was very strategic and non-violent, uh, based on sort of Gandhian principles. I'm a subscriber to Gandhian theories of change. So there's sort of acts of acts of change, activism, where you go out and you actually really challenge some of the, the big damaging processes that are threatening planet, planetary ecosystems and human society. And there's acts of charity where you're sort of working with the people who are falling through the cracks uh, globally in terms of poverty and um, marginalisation, human rights. And then there's acts of constructive acts where you, you, you have to, you know, you're working to apply resources to build the world you want to see. So build living systems, um, communities, energy systems, transport systems that actually live sustainably and, and allow humans to live within the carrying capacity of the planet. So I did a lot of the, the works in the sort of the acts of challenge and also acts of charity. So I worked with groups of young offenders coming out of jail and got them out doing restoration work, restoring uh, creeks and rivers and waterways. But then in my 30s, I thought we really need to really show, we need to scale up big examples of how we can have carbon neutral, climate adapted uh, communities that are run on clean energy, electrification of transport, electric vehicles, urban farming, all these solutions, and then point to that so people can see that they can actually move to better design systems that make economic sense and actually make that big shift. So I think all, all three are part of this system of change. And to the, you know, particularly the younger people of today, you know, we're seeing the, the climate strike movement, you know, more power to them. It's, criti it's a critical part of the, the overall change. But also uh, at the other spectrum, uh, we need to move capital into clean energy systems and away from fossil fuels. And we need to deploy billions and trillions of dollars in this big, big change process. So that's sort of where I'm, I'm sort of working now. Speaking of business, do you set up a bunch of sustainability focused businesses? Can you give a, just a quick summary, Joy will go into further details, but of each of those businesses that you've set up? Sure, so uh, I have Australian Ecosystems, which is a biodiversity restoration and landscaping company here in Melbourne. And each year we go around the natural habitat areas of Melbourne and we collect seeds from woodlands, wetlands, grasslands, forests, 
and we grow millions of plants at our nursery and we restore rivers, creeks, waterways, wetlands. We do biodiversity restoration for rare and threatened species uh, around Victoria. But also we're building landscapes and sustainable landscapes. So landscapes in the urban environment that uh, provide great places for communities to come together and um, enjoy. And they also help with urban cooling, urban biodiversity. So yeah, we've got this great landscape company that's doing big projects. We've grown and planted 35 million plants in the last 20 years. Every couple of years I get up in a light plane and go around and photograph them because the, the projects we've done are too big to, to understand or comprehend from, from ground level. So we have to get up and fly around Melbourne and you see this big mosaic of habitat and wetlands and waterways that are all connected and you see pelicans and birds flying between these zones and uh, they're really important for filtering stormwater and urban biodiversity and climate refugia for a lot of our uh, rare and threatened species in these urban uh, wetland systems. So yeah, so we've, we've really done a great job of a big scale biodiversity in, in Melbourne. So that's Australian Ecosystems and then we have Biofilter. So Biofilter is a company that uh, does big stormwater harvesting systems. So Historically, with, with uh, cities, we've treated stormwater as a, a waste, a waste stream. And we just build our cities to drain as efficiently as possible and, and get that water away. But what we need to do is we need to actually capture stormwater and, and hold it up in the, the urban form and create sponge cities where we use that water as a resource. So we build big stormwater systems that intercept underground stormwater pipes and it captures that water. We filter out all the pollutants and then we take that stormwater and we filter it through planted filters and then we store it in big underground tanks and then we plummet back into the city environment to drought proof our parks and open spaces. So we've built these big stormwater harvesting systems right around Melbourne and they're, they're capturing and, and harvesting stormwater and drought proofing our cities. Because we're facing this problem in Melbourne where we have these flash floods but then we also have droughts. So yep. that's trying to solve both of those issues. It is. So it's interesting. In Melbourne we, we use around 350 billion litres of drinking water each year but we also have about 350 billion litres of stormwater running off our urban surfaces and we can capture that and we can use that to drought proof our cities. So it's a fantastic resource, it's currently a waste stream that's belting into waterways and creating pollution and damage in our waterways. So, so we need to create a sponge city where we, we hold that water up and then we re-release it slowly and evaporate, evaporate it off in heat waves to help cool the city and we can use stormwater to plumb our, uh, to, to hydrate our, our living environment and keep it um, resilient with climate change. So we sort of worked out with Australian Ecosystems how to do the biodiversity restoration in, in cities and also big landscape scale projects out in regional areas. We've worked out how to replumb cities and capture stormwater and, and drought proof cities and now we're working on food, how to turn cities into uh, urban farms. So from, a, from an engineering and a horticultural perspective, cities are these fantastic opportunities. They're big biological pumps where we have all of, the, uh, all of these, these organic waste streams. We, we're calling them waste streams, but they're resources. Huge amounts of food waste currently going to landfill, breaking down anaerobically, creating methane, accelerating climate change. But if we compost those uh, and then we capture rainwater runoff from rooftops, we can intercept those resource streams, and if we grow clever food growing architecture, we can use those resources to grow, grow food and, and flip cities into becoming food producing powerhouses. So, for instance, right behind us, we've got two car spaces here next to our coffee roastery, and we set out to prove how much food you can grow in a car space. And we set a target of 150 kilos of fresh produce per annum per car space as our target because the World Food and Health Organization has identified that a healthy adult globally needs around 400 grams of fresh produce 
per day to remain healthy. That equals about 150 kilos of produce per annum. So it's a science-based little target. So what we've done is we've uh, developed this really clever food growing system. They're advanced wicking beds. So they're self-watering, bottom watering gardens, really water efficient. We're using coffee chaff, food scraps and uh, coffee grounds from the roastery. We're composting it here and we're putting it back into our garden. And since November, we've grown around 140 kilos in each of those car spaces. Our next harvest, we are going to hit our target within six months. So we're showing that by weight, uh, we can grow the requirements of a healthy adult within a car space using clever food growing architecture and waste streams. So, so we're, we're now building modular farms that you can build in rooftops and car parks and backyards and schools. And uh, we're doing these projects now out in the Pacific Islands where people have got sea level rise uh, challenges with food growing. And we're, we're harnessing those big resource loops of rainwater and food scraps and green waste and closing this loop. We're, we're trying to do what nature does, ecosystems do this, they've done it forever. They grab a hold of resources, uh, nutrient, minerals, water, and they hold them in closed loops where they, they exchange multilaterally thousands of times, constantly, perpetually. Instead of being an open system, which is what humans are doing with cities, where we consume and excrete. Ecosystems hold and retain and exchange uh, all those resources constantly, and that's why they're permanent. That's why they're stable. I mean, they're dynamic, but they're stable over time. So what we're trying to do is biomimicry, closing the loops in cities and using these uh, hugely abundant waste streams to turn cities into food-growing powerhouses. We need to do that because broadacre agriculture is becoming more and more challenging with climate change. We're getting extremes of weather, uh, particularly heat waves and droughts. Uh, so we're going to need to augment our food supply, and we can do that in cities. So biofilters now showing how we can do that sort of really efficient urban farming. And so this, this biofilter, how does it work exactly? Um, Wicking beds are bottom watering uh, garden beds. So each square meter of those gardens holds about 100 liters of water. And they've got a, a reservoir in the bottom. They've got soil cones where the soil reaches down and wicks up the water through capillary action. So in a rain event, we can capture thousands of liters of water in this garden. It's actually a big water tank. And then we have a, a deep soil layer uh, where we turn through our compost and uh, we plant the plants and the plants reach down for the water. So the only water loss is through evapotranspiration out of the foliage. It's very, very water efficient. You're not top watering. So you're not losing water off through constant evaporation with sprinklers. And, uh, and as a result, you only need to water this garden once a week during summer and once every couple of weeks during winter. So it's super low maintenance. And because you're not top watering, you're not stimulating weed growth. So weed seeds will come in from the environment and land on these, but we would have pulled out less than a hundred weeds out of this in the last six months. Like the weed, you, you, I challenge you to go and try and find a weed in this garden. <laughs> they just can't germinate because you're not top watering and stimulating germination. So the maintenance is minimal. It drops the maintenance way down. It drops the watering time way, way down. They're resilient in heat waves and they can accept uh, composted food waste. So it's a really simple, low-tech, resilient system that makes it really handy for busy city dwellers to, to grow food. So it knocks out all that, that time in post. You can go away if you're weekend away, come back and your plants are happy to see you. So it's a, just a really good low-tech system that's appropriate for cities. We've touched on Biofilter, the Australian ecosystems, but also Live at the Cape. Can you give us a quick summation of what that's about? So the Cape's really my favourite project. It's, uh, we're building a whole sustainable community on the coast near Phillip Island in southern Victoria, overlooking the beautiful Bunurong Coast, wonderful sort of marine reserves, and we're building 220 houses uh, we've trained our builders to build really energy efficient houses. So the houses are 
averaging eight star energy efficiency, which is super energy efficient. They're, they use a fraction of the energy of a conventional house. Then we outfit those houses with efficient operating systems, heat pump, heating and cooling, and hot water systems, solar energy. And as a result, the whole of the Cape at the moment, the whole community is generating four to five times as much energy as it's using uh, because of the solar energy. We've developed a, a gas-free estate and we're now looking at electric vehicles because we've got this big surplus of clean energy. So the next big technical piece we're doing is how to run cars on sunlight. So uh, so we're, we're doing a, a piece on how to integrate electric vehicles so that people can actually run their cars using the power of the sun and having a smart grid system where we're capturing the energy, putting it in batteries, putting it into electric vehicles, using that energy overnight and completely moving beyond fossil fuels. Uh, so it'll be Australia's first state that's done that. And in the process, we're eliminating energy bills. So my residents at the Cape keep texting me their energy bills, which are, you know, here's my winter energy bill, minus $200 for winter. <laughs> minus $200. Yeah, so, you know, people are actually getting paid to live in their houses because they're generating this big surplus of clean energy. And I think this is one of the, the great things. The pace of, at which sustainable innovation is coming through is, is super fast. And it's really, uh, you know, we can be optimistic about the future. We've got enormous challenges with, with climate change. You know, we're sort of, we've pushed the planetary system to a place we don't want to push it. But the solutions are coming through because there's billions of people around the world engaging with this stuff and hundreds of millions of people investing in it. So 10 years ago, this stuff was expensive. But over the last 10 years, solar panels have dropped 90% in price. The cost of energy has doubled. The power of these energy efficient systems has, has improved so much that sustainability and conventional practice have now passed each other like ships in the night. And there's a big performance gap opening up, not only on carbon emissions, but on economics. So when you, you, know, when you combine sustainability, you get compounding benefits. And as a result, we're building houses that are running on solar energy and that have tiny, tiny bills. And, and it really is the way of the future. We're, we're getting a huge amount of interest from the big developers all, all around Australia with what we're doing at the Cape. And we have visits by the big, the big developers coming down, sending their marketing and sustainability people, their, their directors, and they're, they're having a really good look at what we're doing at the Cape. And I, I think they see that there's, there's deep concern about climate change. There's deep concern about energy poverty and energy bills. And if you can combine all these things, you can build houses that are light footprint, carbon neutral, and have super low running costs if you just put more work into the design phase and train your workforce to deliver it. And we've had 40,000 downloads of our house designs. Um, people around Australia are grabbing our open source designs and building them. We won the National uh, Leadership Award with the Urban Developers uh, of Australia this year, uh, sorry, last year. And we, we, we're generating a huge amount of press. So yeah, it's becoming, a real, it's becoming the, the mouse that roared the Cape. It really is. It's really starting to set an agenda with the national uh, housing industry. It must be super unusual in the property development market to have open source designs for things. I mean, surely that's quite unusual. How did that come to be? The ethical investors behind the Cape are really trying to set up change in the housing industry. We really need to change quickly because we're building energy intensive houses that are not adapted to climate change. They don't perform well in heat waves, so they're really unhealthy and, and, and we, we need to get a rapid shift. So open sourcing is a way of trying to accelerate that. So when we um, trained up our builders to build these high performance homes, we, we pulled in architects, energy efficiency experts, and we said, we'll pay for this process, but you must be prepared to give away these designs. Uh, we want to accelerate uptake of sustainability. Uh, and they, they all signed up for that. So they're downloadable from the website. And I said to the builders and designers, the more you give, the more you get. You know, these are ads for your, your companies floating around, 40,000 of them now, uh, and you will get busy. It yeah. will be good for your business. And they found that. They are, and that's what, that's they're at capacity out. and they're putting on staff. So 
So I think uh, there's there's a, a real concern about climate change. People are concerned about energy poverty and they want to move. And people who are early adopters now are, are being the beneficiaries of being the early adopters. It's super cool. I, I think that's so interesting that you've managed to find a group of people who really see that sort of people planet prosperity argument and I'm not just worried about the sort of the end goal being just the, the bottom line on economic from an economic perspective. Yeah well I, I work with triple bottom line people across all the businesses uh, so they they want to show that you can make a buck which is critical for business sustainability but you can also deliver concurrently social and environmental outcomes and build on ecological and social capital and there's enormous opportunities in that space because the world is shifting quickly and people who stay invested financially in, in the old systems will have their Kodak moment. Oh, yeah. We are transitioning away from fossil fuels very quickly. And if you're up there in that innovation space, sure, there's risks and it's hard work, but that's where the big opportunities come and you are on the front end of that. So there's just from a straight economic point of view, that's uh, really where the new opportunities are gonna absolutely proliferate really soon. So that's so a good space to be in for business. It's really the only space to be in for, for business. Absolutely. Yeah. And for investors, as yeah. you say. Yeah. Yep. Super exciting. I just wanted to ask you super quick about what sort of a day in the life of Live at the Cape would look like. So a day in the life of a resident Live at the Cape is they're waking up in a house that's uh, generating more energy than it uses. It's, it's a beautiful house, aesthetically quite beautiful, but it's super energy efficient, solar powered. Um, it's got uh, very little or no energy bills. Uh, you've got an electric vehicle um, charging in, in the garage from the surplus solar that's being generated from your rooftop. So you can zip into town in your electric car or go for a, a cruise on your electric assist bike to, to one of the surf breaks and go for a nice body surf um, or a swim in the ocean. You can come back via the community garden and uh, harvest some food for breakfast uh, because we've got this big nice urban farm. It's working really well and we're going to be adding a poultry beekeeping in an orchard. So you, you capture some of that fresh produce, come up and then cook your breakfast on a, a, an all-electric induction high-performance cooktop that is also charged from clean electrons from the sun, so no gas. So you haven't used fossil fuels. Um, and then you can then go down to the co-working space uh, at the community centre. So we, we're going to be building a community centre with a conference space, cafe and co-working space with nice ocean views. And that's where people can sort of co-work together. So you don't uh, even need to go into town. You can work remotely from there. You can work remotely and it's got high-speed broadband. Uh, so it's got, got good connectivity, virtual connectivity. So you can be video conferencing to your clients wherever they are. And then in future, if you need to go into the city, you can um, uh, book a, a seat in one of the long-range EVs that's heading into town and you can share that ride with, with some of the others or you can drive your own electric EV. So we've got that zero emissions transport platform. And then other things about the Cape is that it's got socially positive design, no front fences, lots of little pocket parks and micro parks and spaces where the community can come together and interact, but also privacy. So you can sort of drop back into your space and have your own time as well. Into your backyard. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the whole project's aiming to save half a million dollars compared to conventional estates in stationary energy and then half a million in avoided petrol spend compared to a conventional estate. So we're, Cape, we're looking to save a million bucks a year on avoided energy spend. So people at the Cape will be enjoying the super low running costs as well. And why wouldn't you want to live there? I know. When does this finish, Brendan? So we've built, uh, built stage one and sold stage two. We're building stage two now. Stage three is um, selling it. I think the whole thing will build out. It'll take another three or four years and it'll build out. But uh, yeah, it's an option. We're starting to get e-changes from the city. You know, young professional people who are um, looking for a, that nice lifestyle and to avoid the overheated property market here and go down there and 
pick up a beautiful house for five, six hundred thousand house and land, and then you've got those low running costs, and then all the amenity, and people are sort of using broadband to connect to their city clients. So we're we're starting to get that e-change community at the Cape, which is cool. Can we move there, please? <laughs> yeah, why wouldn't you? That sounds, that sounds amazing. So well, it is compelling. And you, you, you're talking about decentralisation. Well, we are looking at sustainable decentralisation out of our cities. That's what I was thinking. Because young people hub. are priced out of this property market, you know. Um, there's this sort of little bit of a you know, generational challenge going on where it's the dice is loaded against young people and you, yep. you um, either pay over overpriced rentals or... Um, a million dollars for a shoebox, um, whereas, you know, you can live regionally. If there's those co-working spaces, I think it's critical that you, you've got access to those good uh, facilities, a co-working space, video conferencing, and then with the electric vehicle side of it, you can zip in and out um, and see clients. Um, and that opens up that ability for work and a work ecosystem where you've got collaborators who have got different businesses, but they're feeding each other work. So you set up this little ecosystem. So co-working is huge in in the city but we want it in regional places no, no reason why it shouldn't be a regional thing yeah which saves so cool. massively on the congestion and the you know all that yeah. as well presumably. well we're heading to eight, eight million people here in melbourne and yeah. um, it's going to choke on its own traffic so Getting we are going to have to redesign and rethink transport and things here but we also need to sustainably decentralize to regions um so yeah it's we're, we're looking at that sort of solution so cool yeah just going back to you personally uh very curious to know where the energy comes from, where the motivation comes. I mean, you've alluded to it, but I'd love to hear you articulate, you know, what gets you out of bed each day? Like, why are you so driven to make these changes happen? Look, I think it comes back to empathy. So I, I, I've got, I think I'm fairly deeply empathetic. Uh, and I've had that since being at school where I hated bullying and um, always stuck up for the underdog. And then that, and, and I'm empathetic to the natural world because that is us. You know, when ecosystems fall over, that's us eventually. We're all connected. We're not. We're not separate. So that that empathy has really driven me to have this broad approach and, and really get my antenna out and, and look at these big, slow build problems and look at the solutions deeply. But it's also the thing that really, really uh, motivates and stimulates me. I get so much. Um, I get so much enjoyment and satisfaction out of building a new system like this pop up farm. Yeah, that's got huge potential. <laughs> Um, and it's a bit like some people sit on their, you know, they, they go and watch their, their sports team and that fires off their neurons. I, I, I get my neurons fired off by doing something like this or building an ecosystem or a zero carbon housing estate and seeing all this really cool stuff that's a, a thing of real beauty as well as function and, and sustainability. So I don't see it as work. That's the key. <laughs> I, nice. I don't see it as work. If I saw it as work, I wouldn't cope with the long hours and and the, the risk and the hard work, but I just fundamentally don't see this as work. Uh, so I think in business, my my approach has been, and also back to the, the environmental campaigns, was working in small groups of, of philosophically and ethic, ethically aligned people um, with a you know a high sort of confluence of um, ideas about where you need to go, and then then working hard, and then inculcating that through your staff group, and and you attract people who have, who have those motivators, and they're self-motivated, and they're, they're they're thinking more broadly than, than themselves. And then you get a really good motivated group and, and you can power on and, and good managers who manage well. And then you can actually manage all these businesses and, and work on the businesses rather than getting caught in the operational grind. Yeah. So we've talked about this ecosystem of, of businesses that you have and they, they, they all kind of point to this concept or idea of the sustainable city. And, and, and many of them solve these critical problems that are going to become increasingly important to people all over the world as climate change becomes more of, a, of an issue. It's a big question for you, but 
love to get your thoughts on what your ideal sustainable city of the future looks like. The city of the future, uh, and we're seeing you know, the germination of all these things and ideas happening now, but in 10 years and, and beyond, cities need to be closed loop ecosystems where they're carbon neutral. So we, we have this built form of buildings that are energy positive, uh, that are built from sustainable materials. And I think um, in the next 10 years, we'll be starting to 3D print buildings out of carbon negative materials like rapid growing biomass that we, we pulverize and shred and then print. So we're drawing carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it into buildings. Uh, running on clean energy and efficient operating systems, so they're very low running cost, and then building, linking them with transport systems that are sustainable. Electric bikes are going to revolutionise the world. They, you know, we've got over 100 million in, in China now, and uh, you can jump on these bikes and travel 30, 40 kilometres uh, with an electric assist push. Uh, so cycle super freeways through cities, electric vehicles, um, you know, better and enhanced public transport, and then. The big, big opportunity coming is autonomous vehicles where people purchase kilometres instead of a car and they're part of car sharing platforms. And then we, we will need to have less vehicles. And once we do that, we open up huge amounts of car parking space for urban farming and urban greenery and urban biodiversity. Uh, and our food systems, um, we, we're going to have challenges with our, our broadacre agriculture. So again, we need to be capturing all that uh, biological potential of, of food waste and, and rainwater runoff. and and growing huge amounts of cities uh, of cities' food requir requirements within city limits, uh, and also then you know connected cities and, and and social cities where people connect with each other and uh, overcome the loneliness epidemic where they exercise they burn uh, that hugely abundant resource of human biofuel that we're all carrying on our waistlines nowadays and get healthier because we've got walkable cities. Uh, I think all, all those things are. All, all, all those solutions are here now. It's just um, investment, political will, innovation, policy settings, pushing through uh, the resistance to it. Yeah. Communicating the benefits somehow. Yeah, it's yeah. a positively, it's a, a hugely positive story. You know, the solutions to saving the planet are so positive. These new systems that are coming through are going to absolutely hit conventional ways of doing things out of the park on straight economics. The world will decarbonise because the renewable energy and energy efficient systems are just so fundamentally superior on economics. So the cheapest forms of energy now globally are renewable, you know, wind and, wind and big industrial scale solar. You know, I, I want you to picture this. What's more economic? Drilling for oil in the deep ocean out off northern Australia, pulling up hydrocarbon molecules, pumping it into a ship, transporting it across to a refinery, pumping it through that whole process multiple times, pumping it back into a ship, across to Australia, pumping it into a <laughs> tank, driving across the landscape in a petrol tanker, pumping it into an underground tank and then pumping it into a car, burning it, releasing carbon, or capturing photons from the sun through solar panels, turning them into electrons and putting them into your electric vehicle at home and driving across the landscape. Which one's going to win? Yeah. On just, economics. Yeah. It's you know? just a matter of time. And the, you know, the costs are three cents a kilometre for solar versus, you know, 12 cents a kilometre for petrol already. The problem is that battery costs are still high, but they're coming down. So we're going to hit parity. And, and uh, electric vehicles will hit internal combustion engines out of the park in, in, in the next decade. So that's going to be a massive transformation. The world is moving beyond fossil fuels. Huge opportunities. The big problem is we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere. We're at 410 parts per million now. We haven't seen that for, uh, you know, three million years. So we've locked in this hostile climate by the time inertia works its way through the system and momentum overtakes inertia. 
we need to be pulling carbon back out of the atmosphere. So again, there's huge opportunities and an absolute driver to find ways to pull carbon down. So thus, if we can 3D print buildings out of carbon and lock it down in buildings, lock it down in soils, if we can amplify ecological systems, the massive biological pumps that already draw down carbon and just amplify those and pull that carbon into things like the deep ocean using marine permaculture, there's huge efforts now going into carbon drawdown to actually undo and reverse climate change rather than just adapt and say we're going to get beaten up let's just try and you know hunker down and get yeah. beaten up and survive let's actually reverse it so, so you know we, we've got to be thinking about carbon carbon drawdown uh, and all these solutions are positive you know you're you're building climate solutions that are multi-solving a whole lot of other stuff you're building urban farms that eliminate food miles take out food waste and meet human needs build places of human connection, improve nutrition, all those things. Uh, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles clean up air pollution, eliminate the use of fossil fuels, reduce carbon emissions. They free up urban spaces in cities so that we can do urban farming and urban biodiversity. You know, in, in the process of solving the climate crisis, we're actually intelligently re-engineering cities to be much more efficient, much more human-centric, uh, much more favourable to biodiversity. Uh, they're better designed, more efficient, lower cost, so, you know, we're in this interesting period of time where those solutions are going to come through. We need politicians to just get out of the way. Just to get be out of the way. Just, just get out. Seriously, just get out of the way. Politicians, yeah. in my experience, don't really lead. So ethical businesses laying down these things and pointing it at them and proving out the economics of it is re really the engine house that's going to turbocharge us uh, and bust all the myths. And, and then if politicians can support that uh, and provide the policy settings to just unleash this innovation, that would be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. What are, you, what are your thoughts on, on decentralization? And I, where I'm going with this is, is it feels to me like when the word gets out that it's actually you get paid to have this type of lifestyle because your energy bills are, you know, go into the negative and your food costs go way down because you can grow it in your back garden. Um, do you see that as a sort of the concept of decentralization in the city of the future is a fundamental thing where people sort of take power back and, <laughs> excuse the pun, um, you know, they have the power within themselves to run their own lives um, without relying on sort of big farms or, you know, centralized utility companies or so on. Yeah, but I think it's going to be a balance where you're going to have less, less reliance on the, the big centralized grids. And the big centralized grids are vulnerable to extremes of weather and climate change. For yeah, instance, right. you know, when you get big heat waves, uh, we, we've seen the grid go down a number of times. The most resilient systems in future will be the ones where you, you're producing and storing and dispatching energy on a local level, and if the big grids get knocked out through super heat waves, you're still energy secure. Um, so it's going to be a balance where we, we still will need the grids, but we're going to take less from them because we can actually have really clever systems that use water, energy, and um, organic material and produce, uh, produce people, uh, meet people's needs, needs locally. So I think it's, it's sort of a, 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 a tension between those, those two things. And urban farming is obviously one of your central sort of solutions that you're, you're really focusing on and double, doubling down on in terms of the city of the future. And we've already touched on sort of the benefits of urban farming and bringing back these, these green spaces. Hmm. Um, and when, when I first spoke to you, you mentioned that we have these sort of nutrition deserts across the city. Yeah, so you know, I just saw a study uh, this morning that's been written up in the New York Times that 
uh, one in five deaths globally is related to really poor nutrition, and that's in the developing world. In the developed world, so we do have nutritional deserts where we have sprawling suburbs, lower socio-economic areas, and then you have a proliferation of fast food outlets. So we've got all this abundance of calories, but they're empty calories, and and they're missing micronutrients and real nutrition. So we actually have nutritional deserts. Then we have obesity, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, all, all these things. Yeah. So. If we can do pop-up decentralised urban farms that can intercept those nutrient loops and and spin out huge amounts of produce, then that's a good way of building building nutrition. It's also a way of building social cohesion. Everyone comes around food, you know. That's a great equaliser, depending regardless of your backgrounds, or your politics, or your um, or, or whatever. So yeah, there, there there is a great opportunity to re-engineer that biological pump and capture those waste streams and turn them into valuable resource streams, and then spin out huge amounts of food. We won't supplant broadacre agriculture. We, we must protect our broadacre agriculture. We must address climate change. We must support farmers. But at the same time, urban farming can be a really big thing that generates a huge amount of food in, in hungry cities. Absolutely. And now we have all the ingredients to make an urban farming culture in Melbourne and other cities. We have stormwater, we have organic matter, and we have the technology. And the space. And the space, right? Yeah, we've got car parks all over the show yeah. that are unused and empty sort of, and empty spots. Yeah. So many of them, yeah. So, so how, does, how would it play out? If we had like pop-up pop up gardens in say these, these nutrition deserts, um, how, how do we get people to come to them? And, and I, I mean, where I'm going with this is I saw you had um, a breakfast where you kind of illustrated how this could work to bring people together using you know, food from the garden. Hmm. Do you see that as a way to sort of bring people together to sort of host, you know, just at a really practical, pragmatic level? Like, how do we get people to engage in this idea? So anyone can build one of these pop-up farms. All the ingredients are there. So it's a little bit of just training and knowledge. And we need platforms and good community organisations that are transferring knowledge about composting and how to grow food and disease control, all those sort of basics. Uh, And then we need... there's. Businesses can do this in car spaces like this, and we're spinning out a huge amount of food to local food charities just out of this space. So this right, is where all okay. our food's going. Um, and then you've got community gardens. Uh, so we've got the ability to do it at a community level. And then we have Melbourne is a thousand square kilometres. You know, we think we're crowded in cities. We have huge amounts of space. One of those spaces is backyards. backyards. You know, people. You know, I'm thinking that we could be building pop-up farms everywhere and spinning out. Uh, a big surplus of food. We can be connecting with apps. Uh, so you could have an army of food growers capturing organic waste and spinning out food and donating that to charity and finding you know, retirees. We've got all this latent human potential that's yeah. unutilised as well. Right. We've got all those ingredients. And lonely people. Who would, and lonely yeah. people. Uh, so you know, it's a way of connecting people in, giving them a sense of meaning, uh, building a community, uh, and, and everyone benefits. So all those things there. What we need is just... Um, Knowledge. We need good governance structures. So just the governance structures of how we sort of run these things in the long term, so they work well and self-fund. But we're, we're pretty much there, I think. I think in the next ten years we'll see an explosion of this. Yeah, super cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can see market gardens popping up all over the place um, in in a Melbourne suburbs, which is pretty exciting. And um, just going back to biofilter, that is going to have a consumer elements. Now, I mean, you've been you, when you explained it to us, it was like these big stormwater tanks and like big infrastructure, or at least biggish infrastructure. But now, I mean, looking at the, the the beautiful greenery behind us, this is something that you know consumers can have in their backyard. So, does Biofilter actually have a consumer element that you can buy one of these, you know, from you guys and yeah. put it in your backyard? Yeah. So we've we've spent a huge amount of time and uh, expense um, mass producing advanced wicking beds. Um, so. We're producing these now, 
and they're water holding. They're made out of a recycled plastic waste stream, and you can buy these, and uh, they're they're super efficient. So yeah, we're we're, uh, we're selling these for people who want to do backyard farming, schools. We're building pop-up school farms, we're uh, community farms. So yeah, they're they're out there and available. Yeah. yeah. And now you you wouldn't be a Melbourneian if you didn't dabble in the coffee industry. So tell us about Zero's Coffee and how that all fit, fits in and how it works um, from a sustainability perspective because it's quite a unique coffee company, I think. So it's a coffee company that we sort of started by accident. I was on a sporting trip with a friend of mine years ago, and he was just doing a little startup in coffee. And I, I said, oh, I'll I'll get in on the ground floor, and this sounds interesting. It's a bit atypical compared to all my other stuff, uh, but again, I've just put the sustainability lens over it. So, so you know, we're we're purchasing ethical beans, um, and here we're running our uh, headquarters on 100% renewable energy. We're moving to try and eliminate waste. Waste is a big issue in the coffee industry. So, Australia produces about 140,000 tons of coffee grounds mm. per annum. We couldn't find that information anywhere. We had to actually research it ourselves, and that's. That's how much. It's about 100 Olympic swimming pools to the brim of coffee waste. That's Australia's oh, coffee habit. Just shows you how much we love coffee we, here Yeah, in we're Australia. crazy for coffee. Yeah, it's huge and it's a great resource. It's uh, full of minerals and micronutrients and it's a great input into compost and urban farming. Unfortunately, most of it's going to landfill. So, what a waste. Uh, it's a massive waste and a massive opportunity. So, so what we're doing here is we're just showing how you can take the coffee grounds and the coffee chaff and compost it and put it into urban farming. So... That's one part of the sustainability is just closing the loop on um, coffee waste. And we're working with a great organisation called Reground who's going around Melbourne and capturing the coffee waste and taking it to urban farms. The next steps are eliminating the packaging in, in, in coffee. So there's, you know, at the extreme, there's the Nespresso throwaway, which are recyclable, but only less than 1% of them probably get recycled. So we're looking at all of our... Um, we're, we're you know, really promoting reusable cups to eliminate single-use throwaway cups. And then our packaging has bioplastics uh, in them, so it's compostable, and we're capturing them and composting them at a commercial composting facility. So we're eliminating that, that waste. I'm really pushing the package suppliers to give us bioplastics that will compost at ambient room temperatures so people can do it at home, because a lot of the bioplastics, the plastics are really resilient and hardy. They don't biodegrade unless they're put through a hot compost loop. super industrial one, yeah. yeah. Up at 60, 70 degrees in a big windrow. So that's a problem because people don't do that at home. So the next step is, and this is for to really tackle global plastic waste, we need bioplastics that are plant-based, but they also biodegrade at ambient temperatures so people can actually, in a decentralised way, compost them back to non-toxic components and put them back into soil and, and back into food production. Mm. So that's the next big step. And I think that will come. I think the, uh, the bioplastics industry is on notice about that. And then the next one, um, to the next big one for coffee is uh, milk is, you know, plant-based, uh, more sustainable alternatives to, to milk. And I think we're already seeing those come through, but I think they need to keep improving uh, yeah. because people, they love the, their, their sort of milk and, and dairy, you know, it's got a big footprint. Yeah. Uh, and, and if we can move to more plant-based uh, really high quality substitutes, then then we can shift coffee onto a more sustainable footing. So yeah, we're sort of having a good look at everything with with, with the coffee in it, and it's fun, and we love having it here at work, and um, it's a really nice addition. You, are you guys process. on the constant coffee buzz? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a couple of coffees a day, and um, yeah, I, I think people. 
people really enjoyed. It's nice having the, the, the hipster roasters working away with the um, the people working on a whole range of projects. It's good fun. That's really cool. It's actually, yeah. coffee is such a great platform to have these conversations around because you know it's such a big opportunity in Australia and it's like a central part of everybody's day or almost everybody's mm. day. Uh, we actually interviewed the founder of Frank Green, the coffee, yeah. the reusable coffee mugs. Yeah. Um, so his podcast will come out just before yours for the yeah, listeners. Great. And he was telling us, he had an interesting stat, which is 40% of landfill today is, uh, is Australian, landfill. Australian landfill is reusable, it is, is um, single-use single coffee cups and water bottles. Yeah. Which is insane, 40%. Yeah. So you yeah. add on the coffee waste to that, mm. and Melbourne's landfill is very coffee-driven. Mm. Yeah, and the fact that, that uh, what is it, wow. three, or 3 to 7% is actually recycled. I think we need to look at waste a bit like the way we look at eliminating um, safety hazards in the workplace. So there's a sort of a hierarchy to approaching safety where you eliminate and redesign the system so you don't generate the hazard, okay? And then right down the bottom, the last thing is putting on personal protection, a helmet and you know respirators and that sort of stuff. But the best thing is to go up the chain and eliminate the hazard with waste, recycle. This sort of recycling thing is, it's a bit like putting on your, um, your hazard and your, your hard hat and your protective gloves. It's the last resort. You want to eliminate the waste stream. That's the only answer. So yeah. you re-engineer the system, and things like reusable coffee cups. So the, you know, that's that's the, that's the that's the solution right there. And you know, producing uh, things in in multi-reuse containers, eliminating all that waste in the first place. That's where we've got to get back to, rather than trying to do these sort of um, band aids. Yeah. So the city of the future also needs to have a pretty robust waste management process plan in place to actually collect that stuff and convince. You know, like I, you know big corporates will have their waste waste collection service and there's just the recycling bin and the waste bin and there's not even the glimmer of thought yet around having a composting bin at most of the ones that I've seen so you know that's something that could be very easily done today is to have a probably a cheaper waste collection at the end of the day because there, there's some value in collecting some of that waste for other purposes yeah absolutely we, we need to set up a, a system where we value our organics and it's a resource and we we uh, put that straight back into the urban environment and produce biodiversity or food uh, or sink carbon, make mm. cities carbon negative and sink carbon. Uh, we need to be capturing the waste streams of water and replumbing that and creating sponge cities and using it to, to cool cities and nourish landscapes. And in terms of the, the waste streams, uh, we need to um, be designing that out of the system. So we need to be uh, having reusable containers in everything. And, and then if you get a residual of of um, plastic, it needs to be a, a, a truly biodegradable at ambient temperatures, room temperatures, bioplastic coming from plants. And, and all those things are solvable because we're in crisis with that. Our recycling industry here in Australia has sort of fallen over. Uh, China and India are no longer taking our rubbish and good on them. Um, but what we're seeing is big stockpiles, uh, which are catching on fire now. Yeah. We've just had these big fires, you know, in the, the coolery recycling fire, which evacuated two suburbs. Uh, these these big uh, factory uh, fires that are happening. So you know we're we're at crisis point, and it needs it needs to change. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, actually, going back to Joy's point, uh, talking to Ben Young, um, the founder of Frank Green, he was saying, uh, obviously the fact that a very small percentage gets recycled, but the economics of um, breaking down uh, a used single-use plastic mm -hmm. and then and reformulating it into another product. It's just more expensive. So, mm. which companies are going to do that? Mm. They're going to take the virgin plastic because, mm. you know, for, from a profit perspective, to keep themselves afloat, 
well, they, it would just make it wouldn't make sense to buy recycled plastic, yeah. unfortunately. But that's the that's, that's the, the reality truth. of it at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Well, it needs to be tackled at all levels. You know, education, regulation, but also consumer behaviour. And now we're seeing the proliferation globally of zero waste supermarkets, which is fantastic. And here we have things like bulk source foods, which mm. is that franchise that's. Um, Fantastic. You go in there and you take your bottles and you get everything from uh, olive oil to washing powder to pretty much uh, all your dry goods and you can actually go zero waste. Yeah. My partner yeah. and I, we, we live pretty much zero waste. Yeah, us too. We, we go to Friends of the Earth on Smith yeah. Street yeah. and pretty much buy all of our stuff yeah. there and it's great. It makes yep. like, it, yeah, it's really satisfying actually to not take your bin out every yep. week. <laughs> well, we're sort of at that point where we're going, well, how do we get rid of that last little bit of plastic all right well you know toothpaste you know let's get and stop going for you know the toothpaste things and yes. and there's solutions coming through in these little niches constantly and it just needs to become embedded unthinking process in cities yep. Yep. well you know our friends um, Vicky and Dave who introduced us to you they have just started selling Dentabs on their website which are the little tablets um, that actually do have fluoride in them because yep. oh, well, they have the fluoride free and the fluoride yeah um, so but that that's the whole mission is, is the zero waste yeah. toothpaste problem. Yep. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's cool. we've got to actually jump on those taps because uh, um, they, they come from the US at the moment. Is that right? They come from Germany. Do they? That particular yeah. brand. Yeah. 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 Um, we need a local brand, I think. To, but that's to all maybe. just sort of scaling up and exactly. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. when enough people start voting with their dollars. So you'll get this sort of, you always get the lead of the people who are sort of a bit switched on with their antenna out, and that that creates the um, the economy of scale for people to be able to scale it, drop the price, and then, and then it, it transfers across. And then finally, governments say, oh, it's okay, now we can regulate. <laughs> you know? But it always you, takes the early adopters take a little bit of pain. You've already talked quite a little bit about carbon sequestr sequestration. Uh, so that's obviously something that's of interest to you. But I'm yeah. curious, you must have your finger on the pulse for really exciting technologies and advancements and, and things that are going to help us with these big problems. Is there anything else that you haven't mentioned yet that, are, that you're really excited about? Any projects or innovations that you're like, wow, okay, that could really change things? I, I am watching the, I have mentioned this, but you know, the, the, the 3D printing space for yeah, buildings, right. that's super exciting. That's so cool. Uh, where we can actually grow, you can grow your building, you know, in the, in the fields nearby and then print it um, and build a precision high performance building that's carbon negative, you know, not, not carbon, not low carbon, it's carbon negative, it's actually you know, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's something that's going to absolutely transform the construction industry in coming decades, or coming years and then decades. Uh, autonomous vehicles, electrification of transport and then mm -hmm. autonomous vehicles. Uh, autonomous vehicles will allow people to run uh, transport on, on sunlight and, and, uh, and then also to reduce car ownership. So not everyone will have to have a car, you'll be part of a car sharing scheme. After this interview, in 10 years time, I'll go, okay, thanks, that was lovely. I'm just gonna call up, uh, there's four autonomous vehicles within a kilometer. Yeah, I wanna go home in a Tesla, I'll call that one up, and I'll pay for the kilometers, you know. So, uh, and then I don't have to pay for the um, ownership of the vehicle or the, the maintenance, so I just pay for kilometers. So it'll be actually cheaper and much more economically benign, and therefore we won't have to have all these cars sitting everywhere and we can then transform city spaces. But I think the really exciting uh, drawdown solutions where we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and reverse global warming, they're formative. There's a website called Project Drawdown that's really worth looking at and that's got the top 100 solutions to reversing global warming and then behind that they've got the next 100 that are coming through Cool. and uh, they've got the best experts across each of those solutions whether it's 
carbon drawdown in soils to marine permaculture arrays that grow rapid growing seaweeds and create habitat for fish and pull carbon out of the ocean and therefore out of the atmosphere. You know, they've got all, all those solutions. One of the most simple ones is educating women, you know, across the world. Educate women, women become empowered. Uh, you, you, you get a stabilisation of population. We'll, we'll yeah. be sure to put that in our show notes, the link to that. The draw, project, drawdown. Drawdown. Yeah. project Drawdown. So, yeah. you know, that's, uh, that's a, a super interesting and optimistic place for people who are feeling, you know, a bit scared about the future. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. a good place Rightfully to go. Rightfully so, but when, yes. Yeah. When you're feeling eco-anxious, go there. Uh, yeah, go and yeah. have a look at the good stuff and then pick the ones that you can actually pull into your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah cool. That's awesome. We actually interviewed the head of sustainability at Interface, which is the, um, it's actually a publicly listed carpet tile manufacturer in the US. I don't know if you've come across these guys, but they actually are trying to think of designing the factory of the future to operate using biomimicry. They use it, they sort of are quite close to the whole biomimicry institute set up in the US. And they want to create a factory of the future that operates like a forest where they, their factory actually takes carbon out of the atmosphere um, and puts it into their product, puts it into their carpet tile. So they actually have carbon negative carpet tiles right which is pretty cool that's cool yeah yep yeah that's where there's going to be big opportunities that sort of stuff and it it's interesting you know i mean with climate change we're going to be able to take you know we use timber for a lot of stuff but with the the wrap you know the, the extended and intense heat waves i think we're going to see more and more of our forest inventory under threat and we're going to need to go for rapid growing biomass that can quickly crop and use abundant resources uh, nutrients and, and grow them and then print with them that that's going to become it's going to be driven by the fact we're going to see a lot of plantations burn and reductions in availability of, of timber. Uh, so it's going to be a necessity, and, uh, but it's going to be much more economic to do so. You'll be able to print a building for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. You know, so you know, it, 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 there's, there's lots of exciting stuff coming through. So no doubt, Brennan, you are seen as an inspiration um, to any eco-entrepreneur out there, and I'm sure all the listeners are very inspired by all the projects you're doing. Um, but is there any, any advice you can impart to mission-based startups who are trying to make real change? Sure. Uh, I think the greatest risk to the planet right now is that we don't change, that we do nothing. You know, in business, in a rapidly evolving environment, if, you, if you're not changing, if you're sitting still, you're actually going backwards. And if we just keep doing what we're doing with the planet, we're going backwards. Uh, so the greatest risk is that we don't change. We need that innovation and disruption. That's where all the opportunities are. I think for uh, innovators generally, uh, someone, a motivational entrepreneur said to me, <laughs> you've got to be prepared to withstand 20 no's and, uh, you know, you've got to be resilient and just stick to your, stick to your, um, you know, your determination and keep pushing through. With eco-innovation, it's even more, you've got to be prepared for 100 no's uh, because you're having to re-engineer whole systems, you're pushing against vested entrenched interests, uh, inert, political inertia. Uh, and you're really, um, you're really working on a, uh, on a really sort of a wide platform for change. Uh, but it's also where the big opportunities, you know, the, the, the multi-billion dollar fortunes are going to be made in, in bringing these uh, solutions through that outperform conventional practice on economics, but also um, are ecologically positive and benign and that multi-solve a whole lot of problems. And we don't have time just to focus on one problem now. We must multi-solve. We must solve a problem that's also co-solving others we need to be really clever so I think um, you know it's a great and exciting place to be you wouldn't want to be anywhere else at the moment uh, than the pointy end of ecological uh, systems innovation and um, just keep going
Very cool. Love that. So inspiring. And if you could impart one message or, or have every person in the world hear one piece of advice from you and have it truly heard, what, what would that be? I think what I'd say is uh, it's pretty clear at the moment we're not being great tenants on planet Earth. Uh, we're, not, we're not doing a great job and you know, we're seeing we're in danger of becoming very lonely with the big crash of biodiversity and the planet's heating up, it's getting a fever. We really need to change rapidly or else things will end up getting quite hostile. But on the flip side of that, all the solutions are coming through so rapidly that it's fundamentally an optimistic um, story that if we embrace these new platforms uh, of clean energy, energy efficient, and all the solutions across all the things we've discussed, we can build a safer, better, more sustainable, more economic uh, global society that meets human needs far better and we can live within the carrying capacity of our planet. And there's hundreds of millions of people who are jumping on this now and I always just say to everyone, make sure you're on the right side of history. You need to jump in and get engaged. I like Absolutely. that. Make sure you're on the right side of history. Yeah. Brandon, thank you so much. This was uh, fantastic. I, so I'm interesting. Really, really inspired and in awe of what you're doing. So thank, thank you. you for your time. Yeah. I think we need to go and invest in some eco-technology, don't you think? I think we need a biofilter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of those episodes that we have continued to find inspiring long after recording it. We are so ready to pack up and head for more sustainable living, urban gardening and a daily surf, otherwise known as living the dream. But most importantly, we started this podcast because of our own eco-anxiety and this conversation is exactly what we'd hoped to find. Super inspiring, very practical and positive solutions for some of our biggest problems. We hope you were able to take away some similar insights. If you'd like to support this podcast and what we're trying to do here, please share the episode with someone and help us get these ideas out there. Thank you for being here and we'll see you next time.